0: Turn with me back in your Bible to Acts chapter 26. <clears throat> I got a lot of help today with my outline from Tony Meredith's commentary. Also, toward the end of the sermon, I got some help from Kevin DeYoung and, and Alistair Begg, and um, thankful for those men. Look with me at Acts 26. This is um, Paul's um, last hearing in the book of Acts before some official that we hear about. Uh, He's still on his way to Rome very shortly. And uh, the sermon is titled, Ten Traits of a Faithful Witness. Ten Traits of a Faithful Witness, and uh, so we're going to have... 10 points to cover for a lot of the sermon, but then we're going to have four more points after those 10 points. So today is going to be a lot of points today, okay? So I don't know if you'll be able to keep up with, if you want to take notes, it's going to be a hard day to to follow with all these points, but there are a whole lot of things we can learn uh, from Paul as he stands before King Agrippa and Governor Festus and all the nobility uh, in Caesarea. The very first... um, Thing I would like to point out just reading this very beginning. If you remember Agrippa and Bernice uh, come with great pomp at the end of chapter 25. Let me just reread a couple verses in 25 verse 23. It says, On the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer but I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definitive or definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, uh, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him." So, you see here, if you remember, Governor Festus is in a bit of a tight spot. He doesn't understand the Jewish religion in all of its detail. He's not a Jew himself, he doesn't understand how all that works, but King Agrippa has a Jewish background, and he does understand some of these things, and so he says, hey, you're in town, why don't you come hear this guy so I can have something a little bit more with your expertise, with your Jewish knowledge, to understand why the Jewish leaders don't like this Paul guy who I have here in prison. And once you've heard him for yourself, we can write a statement out. And we can send that statement to Caesar uh, so that we ourselves have reason for sending Paul in the first place. And so Agrippa is at least curious to hear Paul himself, and Paul appears before him. And there's a lot going on in this chapter, so we will start with point number one. Uh, ten traits of a faithful witness. Number one is be respectful. And this one is rather straightforward if you'll follow along again with the first three verses of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself, Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense, "'I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently.'" Now, do you hear the respectful tone in Paul's voice as he is talking to Agrippa? He could have said many insulting things which would not have been wise or good to do, but he could have said many things against Agrippa, but instead he, gives the, uh, he says something positive about Agrippa, and uh, he speaks with respectfulness. If you remember, you don't have to turn there right now, but I love this text in terms of talking to people who do not share our faith, who are not Christians. In Colossians 4, Paul says this, listen to these words, he tells that church, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. So, you get that? Give us opportunity, Lord. Give us an opportunity to speak Your Word. Open a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Remember, in evangelism, we're not trying to do anything particularly clever. You know, you don't win awards for being a really clever evangelist. The the most valuable and most Christ-like evangelist is the clearest evangelist, the one who can present the good news clearly, not muddling it, Paul says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That, that is the idea, graciousness seasoned with salt. Now listen, Gracious speech does not mean we never say something that is offensive. If we speak of God's true grace, we may say things that are not pleasing to the person that we are speaking to, but it is always motivated by grace. We want them to understand God's truth and and His grace. Uh, One of our favorite verses here at the church on how to use your your, uh, words properly uh, comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Let me just read this real quick. You've, You've heard it before probably. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear." So. We should aim, even when our words have to be challenging, and maybe when they're not going to be as pleasing, or when they are going to be pleasing or encouraging, whatever they are, our words need to be chosen in a way that is appropriate to the context, and they need to be seasoned with salt, and they need to be motivated that the other person we're speaking to would receive God's grace from our mouths as we speak. But So, Paul is respectful. Number two, Paul expresses what it was like not to be a believer. He expresses what it was like not to believe. Look look with me here at the following verse in Acts 26, verse 4. Uh, this is 4 through 11, "'My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee.'" Now, just pause there. Why is Paul recounting? again, his Jewish background, his Pharisee credentials as he's speaking to King Agrippa. And I think there's probably several reasons for that. One of the reasons is this. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not in some sort of battle with the Jewish leaders because I'm jealous of them. If anything, I was as accomplished as any of them were in Judaism. Remember Galatians 1, Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own uh, peers, many of my own people my age in, in, that, in that tribe. He said, I was, I was up at the top of my class in Pharisee school. It's an accomplishment by the way. You remember back then, Biblically, this changed everything, but in, in the minds of these people at the time, fa- being a Pharisee was complimentary. It was considered something noble, something to esteem to, something, something amazing. So Paul says, listen, I've got all the Pharisee credentials. I'm not in some jealousy fight with the Pharisees. I was one of them. I, th- I'm not here today because I'm in some sort of war with the Pharisees in that sense. I was actually one of them. Also Paul's saying, listen, I'm not teaching you a religion other than true Judaism. I'm actually saying that they are departing from true Judaism. The Old Testament Scriptures are pointing towards the Messiah who has come. I'm not not against Judaism. I'm for true Judaism in Jesus the Messiah. Verse 6, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to our fathers. I got nothing new here. This This is as old as Abraham, the promise God made to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King." And I think this hope ultimately through the Messiah is ultimately the hope of the resurrection. And that's how he refers to the hope earlier in Acts, the hope of the resurrection. And the next verse makes me really think that, verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my stone against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Now, here's another useful thing about telling… if we share our testimony with others, including, if we can remember, our time as an unbeliever. Now, listen, if you were converted at age five or six, Praise God. I mean, that, that is awesome. If you, if you cannot remember being an unbeliever. Praise God. Okay, that's the testimony we all want for our kids. That's the testimony we want for everybody we know. That, that is a wonderful thing. If you, if you were uh, too early to even remember pre-converted life, praise God. But for many of us, we can remember with all too vivid detail our life as an unbeliever. We, we remember that. And if you know what your life was like as an unbeliever, it is not wrong to include that in your testimony. And one of the good things it can do is you can show common ground with someone you're speaking to. You can say, listen, I totally get what you're talking about. I used to think the exact same way. And when you say that, ears might perk up because they go, oh, wait, you actually, you're not just some sort of strange religious person. You actually understand what it is like to whatever it may be, and you can use your background to relate to unbelievers. And Paul is saying here, listen, I know these Jewish leaders want me to die because of my faith in the Lord Jesus. I want you to know. I used to hold the same view towards people who held faith in Jesus of Nazareth. I wanted them to die. In fact, Stephen and others, I was there when they were martyred, and I was, you know, they were warming up to throw the, uh, the stones at Stephen to make sure they could really get that, that, that fastball pitch with the stone. I took their coats off and held them so that they could really swing. That's, that's Paul's idea. So, Paul said, I was all in favor of hurting, imprisoning, even killing Christians. That was my full-time job at a point here. I got permission from the Sanhedrin, the very people who hate me now. I I was on their good side. I got permission to go and persecute Christians all over Judea and even up as north as Damascus. Paul's saying, listen, you can't just say that I have no idea of their accusations. I used to accuse with them. So, what made the change? If I used to think just like the people accusing me, if I used to live just like the people accusing me, if I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees just like them, if, if I was one of them, what made the difference in my life? So, so maybe just use a stereotypical thing. Some of you, I know from your testimonies, your background in college was more in the party scene, and uh, you go to the parties, you might drink too much, whatever you might do. That was kind of your background before you knew the Lord Jesus, and maybe you thought that was wrong at the time. Maybe you didn't think much of it at the time, but here's the thing. If you are now a, someone who loves the Lord and has been forgiven, that is a powerful part of your testimony, and when you meet someone who's a college student who is walking in the same steps you once walked in, you could relate to them. You could say, listen, I totally get the allure of that. I totally get why you were drawn into that. I understand why you think that's going to give you happiness or joy or pleasure or satisfaction. I was all in. For the first two years in college, that was what I did every single Friday night. I totally get it. I totally understand the pull. But what I found was, and your story may be different, you might say, what I found was at the end of the day, it was horrifyingly empty. How many parties do you have to leave drunk or vomiting? How many parties do you have to leave? Where I talked to a guy one time who says he, he ended up getting drunk. He was immoral with a girl at a party in a room upstairs in a house. And afterwards, he was weeping about it. He didn't even know what all had happened exactly because he had been intoxicated. You, you have the brokenness of that scene. And then you say, listen, here's what the Lord did. The Lord met me one night. A girl I went to high school with. She was at a party. She was intoxicated. In the middle of the night, her brother picked her up. Uh, she told this story uh, a, a few months later. She was intoxicated. Her brother picked her up, took her back home. That very night, in the midst of her drunkenness, she was so desperate to turn to the Lord because of how broken and empty everything was, she turned to the Lord and was converted while the alcohol had probably not even fully worn off yet. She was deep, like converted, and to this day, as far as I know, she's still walking with the Lord. So, you can use that in your testimony as you speak to other people. Here, Paul is using his religious background and saying, listen, I get what these guys are doing. I was doing it as much as any of them, but God, intervened and changed everything. And I would not go back to the way things were no matter what you were to offer me in its place. Some of y'all saw, this is over two years ago now, we showed a documentary on a Saturday here called American Gospel. Uh, That documentary was a very right and strong critique of the prosperity gospel in America. Thankfully, it's, it's made its way into several online platforms, and you've been able, it's been viewed many, many times over the last few years, which I am incredibly thankful for. I've heard stories of people being converted uh, while, while uh, watching that documentary, which is incredibly uh, encouraging. There was a, a woman in the documentary, uh, and, and as far as I know, I mean, to this day, she's still living, but she has a lot of health conditions. I believe she's maybe in her 30s. She and her husband have two children, And there's a moment in the documentary, I remember this because I was showing it to some students this past week at school, and there's a moment in the documentary where she talks about all the ways that she's almost died. She had internal bleeding after a surgery where she nearly died. Uh, She's had all kinds of issues, issues with her spinal, uh, uh, not with her spinal cord, with her her vertebrae. Uh, She's had issues where she could no longer eat food, so they're feeding her bypassing her esophagus and her stomach, feeding her directly into her intestines. And so she has IVs plugged into her all the time, uh, and she's trying to be a mother and a wife, and she's just always in pain, it seems like. I mean, she's got as much suffering as you can really think of. And there's a moment in the interview that I paused it in class because it's so powerful to me. She looks at the camera and she says, because she was converted after they got married, they were both more atheistic when they got married. And so she says, if I could go back to the way I was before I got sick, you know, rewind 15 years, I was all into health, I was all into exercise, I was on all these different things, but I was not into Jesus, I was not a Christian at all. She said, if I could go back and get all my health back and lose Jesus, she said, I wouldn't do that ever. She said, My life is so much richer and more fulfilled now, now that I have all this, even with the suffering, I would I would not trade it. I would not go back. And with our testimonies we're able to say listen i understand you to whatever degree we can understand the unbeliever we're talking to i I understand you look here's where i was but the lord gave me something so much better and he offers it to you and you can have the joy you can have the, the living water and the bread that has been given me in christ you can have that and so paul gives this background here to his testimony and number three we want to make sure that as we tell about our conversion that we glorify Jesus and not ourselves. Glorify Jesus and not self. Now, I haven't heard one of these recently, but maybe you've heard one of these. You can sometimes hear a testimony, and it, it really sounds like the hero is the person getting converted. And I don't even quite know how that works, but there is a way, I think, to share your own story where somehow or other you come out looking like the hero. Now, let's just Class, let's take a lesson here. (laughs) If your testimony ends and everyone's drawn to how great I am or you are, we're doing the testimony the wrong way, all right? The testimony needs to say, listen, but for God's sheer grace in my life, there would be no hope for me. And uh, Paul here has the intervening grace of God that saves him, and that's why the glory goes to Jesus. Look at verses 12 and following, 12 to 16. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. I was on their team. So what changed Paul? At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me, and those who journeyed with me." Why does he add that? Paul, you were hallucinating. It was hot. It's the summer. I mean, you know, it's it's the desert, not the summer. It's the desert. You're outside at, at noon you're just having a hallucination. No, no, no. Listen, the voice was heard, although it wasn't fully understood by everyone. It was heard by everyone, the voice of Jesus. They didn't understand the words exactly, but they heard the booming voice, the thunderous voice, and they saw the blinding light too. I'm not some lunatic here. The whole group of people traveling with me, they saw and heard the same things I saw and heard. This is not just a hallucination. This is something that we saw together. This really happened in time and space. Verse 14, and when we had all fallen to the ground, all of us, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, which is probably the Hebrew dialect, which is Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we get a little bonus here. The other times he tells this testimony, there's no mention of this kicking against the goads. And I don't want to get into a big debate here. And I, I, there might be a slight disagreement of opinion on, between some of us. I don't, I don't know for sure. But... Uh, I I don't think, and this is slightly controversial, not a big deal, but I don't think what Paul's saying is that he had been tormented in his conscience for years that he was wrong about about what he was doing to Christians. Uh, Sometimes people will paint it that way. The reason I doubt he's saying here that he had been tormented in his conscience, that Christianity was probably true. Some people say it's because he saw Stephen martyred, and ever since he saw Stephen martyred, he knew he was wrong, and he's been fighting it, kicking against the goads. Here's why I doubt that. Look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth." Does that sound like someone with inner conflict about what they're doing? No, Paul was actually convinced he was doing the right thing. He thought, this is right. I mean, you just, I don't want to go on a long tangent here, but if you remember, this was his thought process. God is treating the Jewish people as a covenant nation. If we worship false gods, God will judge Israel like they did with the Babylonians and the Assyrians. So here's how Paul's thinking. Wrongly, this is how he thought as a Bible-believing Pharisee who got it wrong. Paul thought this, we are now seeing a sect, a group of Jews who are worshiping the wrong guy, the wrong Messiah, this Jesus guy. The fact that he was crucified is proof he's not the real Messiah. That's what he thought. So, he says, listen, if we start worshiping this sect of the Nazarenes, we will be worshiping a false deity, and God will judge our whole nation once again if we do this. So, what, the, what we got to do is we got to snuff out this heretical sect by imprisoning and, if necessary, killing these Christ followers. That's, so, in his mind, he thought this is the right thing to do. I'm, I'm honoring God by doing this. Remember, Jesus said, the day is coming When people who kill you will think they are honoring sacrifice, they're they're giving honor to God when they do that. So that's how Paul's thinking, but he meets the risen Jesus. Just as a footnote that we'll come back to, the resurrection of Jesus is what changes everything. It's what changes everything. Let me me just say a word about that here. Um, Christianity is not mainly this, it's not mainly if you like the doctrines of the Bible, then you should be a Christian, or if you personally have feelings that match up with what the Bible says about ethics and morality, then you should be a Christian. It's, it's, not, a, it's not like a buffet where you're finding the, what you want, and, you, oh, I've, I like this religion because it suits me. Christianity is not, not about that. What, what you and I need to settle on about Christianity is one question, just one question. And the dominoes will all fall one way or the other based on this one central question. It's a question that changed Paul. This is why he's glorifying God and Jesus in his testimony. The one central question upon which everything hinges is a simple question. Did Jesus rise bodily and physically from the dead after He was crucified? That Jesus lived is not controversial. There is only a tiny group of, frankly, out there people who think Jesus did not exist historically. I mean, it's just... a honestly, it's an an absurd argument. We could go there. Most everybody today, whatever your belief system, believe Jesus existed, He lived, and even He was crucified. The bazillion-dollar question, the million-dollar question, the central question about everything else is, did He rise bodily from the dead? If Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead, we are involved in a massive waste of time right now. And studying your Bible and trying to do what the Bible says and believing in Jesus is all mythology. It's just all a waste of time. By the way, the Bible says that, right? First Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is pointless and you're still in your sins. If Jesus rose bodily from the dead, Christianity is true. The teachings of Jesus and His apostles and the prophets are true. This is God's Word and we must give everything that we are to believe it, to obey it, because it's everything. That, that's the central question. And Paul here shines the spotlight on Christ's resurrection. Continue with me here. Look at um, verse 15. So, so what, kicking against the goats, I think what, what, what that's saying when Jesus says that, I think what he's saying is you are pushing against reality. In other words, If you remember earlier in Acts when the apostles get in trouble, Gamaliel, the guy who trained Paul, who was not a Christian, Gamaliel says, listen, if this is not of God, it's going to fail, and if it is of God, we might find ourselves opposing God by opposing the Christians. So just let it go and see what happens. I think Paul here is pushing against reality. In other words, you're kicking against the goads. Is like you're trying to accomplish something that you will never be successful at. You cannot stamp out Christianity because Jesus promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appealed to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen uh, me and, in the, and those in which I will appear to you. Now, I'm going to move to point five in the middle of a sentence here. As a faithful, uh, point four, excuse me, in the middle of a sentence, urge faith in Jesus and repentance from sin to all people. Urge faith in Jesus and repentance from sin to all, verses 17 to 22, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance." So you see here, Paul is urging faith and repentance on who? Jews and Gentiles. You'll see him mention in verse 22, the small and great, everybody. It doesn't matter. There's no favoritism. There, there's not the same God is Lord of all. He, the same God is God of all. Everyone who was made was made by God, and therefore we are accountable to God, and therefore we have one Savior sent from God, and we have one hope of salvation in that one true God. And so, because one God made all of us, and we're all made in God's image, which is why we all have inherent dignity, value, and worth because of the image of God. Therefore, everybody, whether they are considered small or great in the world's eyes, whether they are Jew or Gentile, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their background, no matter what religion they grew up believing, no matter how much they have or how impoverished they are. does not matter. The same God is Lord of all, offering His grace freely to all who call upon His Son, the Lord Jesus. So, we should offer the gospel freely to all people, and we should include repentance and faith in the message that we present to others. But we mostly talked about that last Sunday, so I will continue here. We need to present, this is point number five, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. Look with me at verse 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So what did the Old Testament say? Verse 23, that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So, you see here, Paul says, this is a huge, by the way, debate for Paul. Paul says, I'm not starting a new religion. Judaism and the Old Testament, they would have called it the Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the the Old Testament is a story with a cliffhanger. No one reading the Old Testament thinks the story has ended when you get to the end of Malachi or wherever you get to the end of. When you get to the end of the the, the Old Testament, it ends with promises without total fulfillment. And so the question is, how does this story end? And Paul says, I'm not making up a new religion. My religion is as ancient as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise to the forefathers, and that he would send the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, to bless the nations, the son of David. This is nothing new. This is thousands of years old. And guess what? The Messiah has already come. He came in an unexpected way in some ways, but once you see what he did, although no one saw it coming that he would die on a Roman cross, when you look back at the Old Testament, you see, look, the king coming humble on a donkey into Jerusalem, look, they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn as one mourns for an only child. He he bore our sins and carried our diseases, by his wounds we are healed. Once you see all these prophecies falling in place, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? For the words of my groanings, strong bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan are at my hands and feet. They've pierced my hands and feet. a lion there around me, they're casting lots for my clothing. Once you see what Jesus did and you look back at the Old Testament, it's so clear. The whole time it was about Jesus of Nazareth. I'm not inventing something new, Paul's saying. I'm simply revealing what was always there in the Bible. This is what God's plan was always heading toward, a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. It was unexpected, but once the puzzle pieces are in place, it makes perfect sense. He bore our sin in His body on the cross. Number six, as we present this, we must be ready for rejection and for ridicule. Look with me at uh, first verse 21, rejection, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. That's the extreme response of rejection. Look at verse 24, as He was saying these things in His defense. So, Paul's always in the, by the way, Paul's always in the middle of his speech when someone interrupts him and he never gets to finish his speeches. If you look at Acts, it's, it just cracks me up. He's always like, can I finish one of these sermons? So, Paul's in the middle, and then someone always shouts him down in the middle. So, here it happens again, Governor Festus, who really doesn't understand what Paul's talking about, as he was saying these things, verse 24, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, that's where we get the English word megaphone, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Just stop. Festus does not understand the Jewish Old Testament at all. So Messiah, all this talk, he's lost. He has no idea. So Paul has gone further than usual because he's got King Agrippa as his audience. He knows Agrippa knows this stuff. The Festus is just lost. He's a Roman governor. He's not following at all. He thinks, Paul, you're one of these guys who just sits around studying all day every day and you come up with these crazy conspiracy theories and you start preaching them as if they're true. Dude, You are out of your mind. Come on. Your great learning is driving you insane. Now Paul could have responded right now with sarcasm or anger. He responds respectfully. Look at verse 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. So we should expect ridicule and rejection as a possibility, but point number seven, we should also make application boldly. We should also make application of our message boldly. I think this is the boldest moment in the whole speech. I just pause here before we read it again. I want you to picture the… picture you're where Paul is. You're in this, this, uh, this uh, audience hall, all the elites are there, the Roman governor under Caesar is there, King Agrippa and his sister is there, and all these leaders, the military tribunes, all the prominent men, you're a nobody in chains, and Paul has the humble courage and the boldness to look at King Agrippa and make a personal charge to him specifically in front of everybody. This would take some courage, and I think it is glorious. Look at verse uh, 26. So Paul turns away from Festus, and he looks at Agrippa. Verse 26, for the king knows about these things. So Festus, you may not know about them, but the king Agrippa, he, he knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things, and about Jesus' crucifixion and all that, none of these things has escaped His notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I know that you believe. For the sake of time, I'm going to add the next point here. We should ask good questions, And, and Paul does this twice in this chapter, okay? Let me just take a second on this. Look, look, I want to put these two side by side. These are wonderful questions. Look back at verse 8. So Paul's being mocked for his belief that Jesus rose from the dead, and look at his question in verse 8. This is such a brilliant question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That is a brilliant question, because think about it. They're mocking Him, going, you think a guy was crucified. Let me get this straight, crucified, which Deuteronomy says he was cursed of God. He's buried, okay, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, that's fine. You're telling me that on the third day, God raised him from the dead. He resurrected a man in the middle of human history. That's madness. No one believed that was going to happen, not even the Jewish people. No one thought one resurrected person would happen in the middle of human history. And so Paul, how does Paul deal with the mockery? He asks a question that is absolutely, just flattens the objection. Okay. How many of you in the room believe in, in God? Well, they're all theistic to some degree. They might be polytheistic, but they all believe in God. Everybody in the room raises their hand. Okay. How many of you think it's impossible for God to raise the dead? Where do you think you, God knit you together in your mother's womb? Everybody was ultimately made by God. He gives us all life and breath and everything. You think it's too hard for God? He's created the world from nothing. He's made all of us. You think it's too hard for God to bring someone back to life who already died? How many of you think God cannot do that? Well, now they're stuck well, of course God can do that. Okay, case closed. He did it in Jesus. So, look look again at his question to King Agrippa in verse 27. This is a beautifully asked question, puts him in the hot seat. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. That is awesome. King Agrippa claims to have a Jewish, you know, he's Jewish, at least in word he says. Okay, King Agrippa, You know Isaiah, the suffering servant? You know Zechariah when God will be pierced and a fountain will be opened on that day in Jerusalem to cleanse us from our sins? You heard of that passage before? And on and on he could go. You read the Psalms? Someone who was my best friend has lifted up his heel against me and betrayed me and on and on. You, You read these? Do you believe those prophets? Now, King Agrippa is stuck because if he says, yes, I believe the prophets, which would technically be what he should say, if he says yes, then Paul has got him checkmate. Okay? Where do those prophecies point? Who else in human history fulfills those prophecies? Jesus of Nazareth, you can become a Christian right now, please, become a Christian. Agrippa is not going to go there. But if Agrippa says, no, I don't believe the prophets, now he's in big trouble again because the Jewish people are going to go, what? You were one of us. You're on our side. Get him out of here. You know, they are going to revolt against the king. So, he does what, forgive me, a good politician does, <laughs> and he doesn't answer the question. He says, uh, uh, verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Oh, so the time is the problem? (laughs) He he doesn't say yes, he doesn't say no, he's trapped either way. So he just says, you think in a short time you're going to make me one of these crazy Nazarene followers? Not me, Paul, I'm not going there. And uh, Paul has this amazing opportunity. So, I'm running low on time, but I'm just going to create extra time. That's the, that's the beauty of just create more time. Um, let, let me add something here. We, we as Christians need to get better at this. Let, let me give you a book. I've mentioned it in years past. I was looking back at it again this morning. It's a book called Tactics by Gregory Kokel. Kokel is spelled K-O-U-K-L. It's an amazing last name. So Gregory Kokel, who's a Christian, uh, he does Stand to Reason, uh, all, all kinds of stuff online. You can look him up. He's, he's a good guy. The book, Tactics, I think it's called A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions. It really is a captivating book. It's not hard to understand or to read. The whole One of the major premises of the book is something he calls the Columbo tactic, but I won't go into that, but basically what he's just saying is, you need to find out how to use good questions when you are in conversations with unbelievers and he tells stories of conversations he's had and that simply by asking the right questions it has unlocked amazing moments in dialogue with other people and since i'm just adding time to the sermon let me just quickly give you one brief example that just stuck with it sticks with me in my mind He's talking, I believe. I think it was to a Jewish lawyer who was not a Christian, not, not even an Orthodox Jew, and his, the guy told him in this conversation his biggest problem was with the doctrine of hell. Understandably, for a lot of people, that's the biggest objection to Christianity. It's one of the top objections. So, this guy's a lawyer. He turns to him, he says, do you, "He says, can I ask you a question? Yes. So, Greg Kogel is asking the non-Christian lawyer, he says, do you believe people should be punished for moral crimes? The guy says, well, you got me. I'm a lawyer. Yes, I do. I, I'm kind of… That's my business. Yeah, I do." He said, okay, let me ask you another question. This might be a little bit embarrassing, but have you ever committed a moral crime? He said, it got real quiet. And the guy said, uh, yeah, I suppose I have. He said, well, so have I. I've committed moral evils and moral crimes too. So guess what you and I both believe? We both believe people who are doing things morally evil should be punished, and we both think that we've committed evils that should be punished. Sounds like the doctrine of hell is being built by this guy just by asking him two questions. Okay, suddenly the guy says, yeah, I'm a sinner and I deserve judgment. He just said it to him. He said, I didn't even tell him that. He told me that he he had both committed crimes and that he deserved punishment. So, he said, okay, now let me explain. Jesus on the cross was paying that punishment. He was paying. He was paying for our sins. He was giving an opportunity to where if we will just confess our sin and turn to Him, we can be forgiven. And suddenly, the gospel is making sense because of two carefully crafted questions, and he gives dozens and scores of examples of questions uh, throughout the Bible uh, that I won't go through right now. So, use good questions in our evangelism point number nine. Plead with and pray for the people you are engaging. Plead with and pray for the people you are engaging. Look at verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now you see the the bit of prayer, I would to God, he says, God, please do this, it's kind of the the flavor of it, but he's also pleading with them. Now, let me just say, not going to get into a big debate about this right now, but the doctrine of election and pleading with unbelievers to be saved are in no tension or contradiction in the Bible. The Apostle Paul who teaches on the doctrine of election more often than anybody, I mean Jesus does as well, but Paul has it a lot he, the doctrine of election does not make Paul passive or lazy. He doesn't say, well, if you're chosen, you're chosen. Paul says, I would to God that all of you in this room would have what I have in Christ except for these chains. Please, please, please believe. Second Corinthians uh, chapter five, Paul says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal through us. We implore you, the NASB, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There is no tension in the Bible between believing in God's sovereignty and salvation and pleading and begging and imploring people to trust in Christ. And if we think that there's tension there, that's something wrong with us, not with Scripture, okay? Well, I want to believe all that Scripture teaches, and I want to be a person who pleads and prays for people to be saved and ultimately trusting the final results to God's good and sovereign will at the end of the day. And we've got one last point. We must rely on God's gracious help. We must rely on God's gracious help. I'm going to go backwards to verse 22. Paul says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. Let me give you two verses. Colossians 1 says this, Him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me." So God is working powerfully within me. He's with us. One more verse, Hebrews 4. We all know this one, I think. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay? What's the application of that? We have a high priest who can sympathize with us and has been tempted. What's the application? Here's the next part. Let us then… that's like therefore, therefore let us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace… I mean, talk about a phrase of all the things that sinners could have God's throne called the throne not of wrath, which it could be for us, not simply the throne of holiness, although that's true, the throne of grace, let us with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God does not send us out to witness and to evangelize on our own. The Great Commission, we just mentioned it in Sunday school for some of you, go into all the world. Let me just get this right all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go." If that first sentence is gone, there's no reason to go because you'll fail. But Jesus has all authority, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you all, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age." As you go to witness, it is hard, it is, it is sometimes awkward, it can be embarrassing, whatever the setting may be. The Lord is not leaving you out to dry, He's coming with you, He will be with you, He will strengthen you, He will empower you, He will give you grace for help in a time of need. So in those moments when you don't know what to say, you don't have that brilliant question to ask like Paul had, your brain is completely blank on what to say next, you're a little bit nervous, Lord, help me, and the Lord will be faithful. Even in our bumbling and stumbling, the Lord will be faithful to bring us through that, to guide us through that, and to help us to honor His name no matter what comes our way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I I do think that a list of these ten things can be frankly overwhelming. I mean, who of us is doing all these things exactly as we should? All of us fall short. God, I pray that You would help us to see that the message we have to proclaim is true and it is glorious. Jesus really did rise from the dead, which means we will really rise from the dead, that all that Christ taught is therefore true and validated that all of Your Scriptures are also proven true and validated by the resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray that we would seek You, that You would be with us as You promised, that You would make Your nearness known to us, that You would help our heart to feel something for the lost people and those struggling who are believers in our life, that we would have the courage and the love to reach out to them in a humble and gracious way. I pray, as Paul said, that we would make the best use of the time and that we would speak graciously with our words that are seasoned with salt, that we might know how to answer each person. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.